0: As you're being seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's word and open to the book of Genesis once again, working our way through the section of Genesis that traces the life of Abraham being called out of the land that he knew and given all these promises. And, and um, he hasn't seen all the promises yet, And but we get closer even today. So we're gonna be in Genesis 23 this morning, Genesis 23. And I'm gonna read uh, the whole chapter, Genesis 23 for us. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Mechpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. As far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Gracious God and heavenly fathers, we come... To your word this morning, may you help us to understand that every word that we read from scripture is given by inspiration from you and is profitable for our instruction and our training in righteousness, even words that seem so obscure and unrelated as these words. So help us this morning to have our minds sharpened on your word, to have our hearts renewed by your word, and to have our wills reshaped by it as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this strange passage before us, Abraham enters the real estate market for the first time. And thankfully, it's not as harsh of a real estate market as ours is here in South Florida because he's actually able to become a first-time property owner, first-time home buyer. But unlike the joys of that young person or that young couple that first secures their own piece of real estate, their own home, Abraham's first piece of real estate that is titled over to him is the kind that everybody needs but nobody wants to buy. It's a burial site for his beloved bride. Ironically, Abraham's first piece of property that he owns is ultimately the last piece of property that everyone will own on this earth, as it were. If you were to visit any one of the historical churches that were established towards the beginning and formation of our country, you'd likely see that next to the church building in some vicinity is a graveyard. This was a common practice. And in fact, many churches designed it so that as you were coming in on your horse and buggy to walk to the sanctuary doors, you had to walk down the middle of a graveyard to ac- access the sanctuary doors to the church. And this was by design rather than by accident. They didn't build a graveyard and then think, well, I guess we've got to put the church next to it. It was by design for a number of reasons. Think about it. as you walked into church, in those old historic churches, as you're walking by this graveyard, here's what's happening the testimony of those who have gone before you are serving as a motivation for you to live by faith as they did. And then as you walk into church through that graveyard, the reminder of your friends and family and fellow church members who have died was communicating to you that life is but a vapor. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. And then seeing those tombstones, which were all marked by a date of birth and a date of death, reminded every churchgoer going into the sanctuary, that we all stand, as it were, on the precipice of eternity. One moment we will pass from this life into the next. And so it's reminding you, live now in light of forever. And the other purpose, I think which is most relevant for our reflection this morning, is that these final resting places of your fellow church members and family and loved ones as you're passing them, going into church, reminded you that here we have no lasting city, but we look For that city which is to come, that true and better heavenly home. You're coming from your home, going to church, looking at their last earthly home. Or you're leaving church, going back to your earthly home, looking at their final earthly home, reminding yourself, here we have no ultimate lasting city, but we look for that city which is to come. And so in this text, we're seeing Abraham grieve the loss of his wife Sarah while acquiring a final earthly resting place for her. And in that, we're reminded that despite our desire for permanence, this world can only offer us transience. So as Abraham is negotiating for a burial site that he gets, we often negotiate with life. I'd I'd like this to be permanent. I'd like this joy to be permanent, this relationship to be permanent. And the world says, the best I can do is temporary. The best I can do is transience. So despite our desire for joys that will last and relationships that will Never end, in this life, all good things have an expiration date on them, whether we see them or not. Yet, a Christian pilgrim on this earth is sustained by a greater hope, a heavenly hope. And I think C.S. Lewis is the best to articulate this. He said it this way, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I I must keep alive in myself the desire for that true country which I shall not find till after death. I must make it my main object in life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Well, as as beautifully as Lewis states that, he is absolutely unoriginal in making that point. In fact, he's plagiarizing Hebrews 11. In fact, the the key to originality, as Mike Bruce would say, is to cover your sources. Well, this is... C.S. Lewis' source, Hebrews 11, which is speaking about Abraham and Sarah. And here's what the author of Hebrews says about Abraham and Sarah in chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. And I'm paraphrasing. Abraham and Sarah died in faith, not having received the fullness of all that God had promised to them. But they saw what God was promising them from a distance, and thus realized that they were just strangers and pilgrims on earth. Ultimately, They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one that God was preparing for them. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God. So that's the truth that Lewis was restating. And that's the way the author of Hebrews summarizes the life of Abraham and Sarah. They were living by faith, looking forward to the fullness of the promise which would come in that heavenly country. So in Genesis 23, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three realities in this text that teach us like they taught Abraham, And Sarah to desire that better heavenly home which God is preparing for us. So, first reality in our text, which teaches us to long for a better heavenly home, is the sorrows that afflict us on this earth. So, when we have sorrows on this earth that afflict us and come over us, like sorrows like sea bills roll, that is meant to instill in us a desire and a longing for our true and better heavenly home. And we see Abraham's sorrows in the first two verses of Genesis 23. Sarah, his wife, lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So think of the recent history of Abraham's life. It is a display and demonstration of what Job taught us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives Isaac in Genesis 21 this child of laughter and joy. The Lord gives a lamb in provision for Isaac, so he doesn't have to sacrifice his son instead, keeps him. But now in Genesis 23, the Lord takes away. So his wife, we don't know how many years, decades, is now called home by the Lord. And it's that short, simple phrase in verse 2 that stings. Sarah died. And that short, simple phrase from verse 2 in Genesis 23 is an echo from Genesis 3 which reminds us that because sin has entered into this world that Abraham lives in, death spreads to all people. Contrary to what other religions, other worldviews, other ideologies would teach, this is what Christianity teaches about the reality of death. Death is not nature just running its course, but rather it is sin running its course, for the wages of sin is death. Death is not natural at all. It's unnatural. Also, death is not The transition into the next stage of reincarnation, or hopefully maybe nirvana this time. But rather, death is the transition into the finality of eternity. For it is appointed unto men to die once and then after that face judgment. No do overs, no mulligans, okay? And also, Christianity teaches that death is no mere biological defect that hopefully technological or medical advancement can overcome after some time. No, no. Death is part of God's curse on rebellious humanity that can only be overcome by Christ, who has become a curse for us. So those words, Sarah died, are sobering words that offer us a serious reminder. And often when someone passes away, we write an obituary for them. So consider Sarah and... What would a honest, unvarnished obituary of Sarah's life sound like? I think it's, it's always interesting that whenever an obituary is written, it's like we saved all the nice things we wanted to say about them till after they passed away, and we said all the harsh things while they were alive. Probably could work on a balance there. But here's the unvarnished, honest truth about Sarah's obituary. At times, Sarah demonstrated great faith in the Lord. She honored the Lord's calling in her husband's life, and left her homeland, everything she had known, to go where the Lord was calling them. From the time that God called Abraham and Sarah to go, she lived as a stranger and pilgrim with no place to call home, but by faith she was looking forward to her true and better home. At other times, Sarah demonstrated great foolishness and sinfulness. One time when she was sick of waiting to see if the Lord would provide the child he had promised, she decided to give her servant Hagar to Abraham and then resented Hagar and Abraham for successfully executing the plan that she had designed for them. She even had the audacity to laugh at God's promise, because she struggled greatly with unbelief. And then she tried to lie that she didn't actually laugh about it, saying, I I never laughed. And also, let it be known that if her marriage to Abraham was an ice cream flavor, it would be called Rocky Road ice cream. (laughs) Their marriage was good, especially by the standards of that day. But it wasn't always easy and sweet. It was like any human marriage. It was not pleasant for Sarah to be married to a man who keeps trying to pass you off as his sister, then putting your life and future in great jeopardy. But the most important thing about Sarah is that despite her strengths and her sins, God was faithful to her. He was gracious to her despite her weaknesses. He was mighty to use her despite all her frailties. And he loved her to the end. Thus ends the obituary of... Sarah now let me ask you this if the Lord calls you home today tomorrow soon in the near future what would an honest unvarnished obituary of your life sound like if we were to write it for you or if those who know you the best were to write it for you we like to kind of cover over the truth we like to kind of keep it concealed but if the unvarnished truth of our life was revealed at our obituary would we enjoy others reading it and the reason I ask that question is twofold. Thinking soberly about death and eternity helps us to reverse engineer it and think seriously and spiritually about life. It helps us live now in light of forever. It sharpens our focus and our thinking about where we need God's grace, where we need to change, what habits and priorities need to be altered and renewed in our lives. But most importantly, thinking soberly about death should drive us to cling more tightly to Christ. When I think about an honest obituary of my life being written by my wife and kids tomorrow, I think I better start looking for a new job tomorrow. And I am so thankful for the blood and righteousness of Christ because there is so much to cover. There is so much to cleanse. I think every Christian, every honest Christian, in the end, should understand that of themselves, unvarnished truth, you could summarize your obituary with these words from Charles Spurgeon. They had a great need for Christ and a great Christ for their need. That's all that needs to be said about our obituaries. Let's move from thinking about our own mortality to what it looks like for a Christian to respond to the loss of a loved one. So you you see Abraham here responding to the loss of his wife. and In verse two, you notice that he goes in and he mourns and he weeps for Sarah. And I think he does this because he rightly recognizes that she was a gift to him. I mean, to be married to Abraham, to put up with Abraham, you have to have special abilities and gifts. And she did. So he weeps and mourns for her because a a precious gift had been given to him and now is taken away from him. And I think he also recognizes that death is an enemy. Death is not a welcome friend. It is an invader, an intrusion on this earth. So, Christian, how should you respond to the loss of a loved one? Well, this reminds me of a question that Paul was asked by the Thessalonians. They were wondering, what about all those who have gone before us? What about all those who have died from persecution, died from famine, disease, all these things? How should we respond to the loss of loved ones? Well, here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 413 to 14. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So summarize what Paul says he says to you dear believer when you lose a loved one grieve but grieve with hope. Let your grieving be mingled with hope let your hope be mingled with grieving. You see Christian grief is a grief that is real and honest but it does not drive us into despair. And Christian hope is not a cold, stoic, lifeless hope. It is real and honest and knows the realities of a hard life. And so we grieve with hope. So grief, like Abraham expresses over Sarah, it actually honors the Lord. I, I know Christians who, they struggle with their sorrow, especially when it's been years since a loss. And they wonder, am, am I you know, just not embracing God's sovereignty enough? No, embracing God's sovereignty does not take away the realities of a hard life. In this world. In fact, it makes us look at them honestly and soberly. So grieving glorifies God because it shows us how grateful we were for what He gave us in that loved one, and it shows us that we hate what He hates, namely death and separation and permanent earthly goodbyes. But in your grief, hold on to the hope of the gospel. The the narrative of the gospel goes like this: sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. He was crucified on Friday and laid in the tomb, but he rose again victoriously on Sunday. So hold on to hope even in your grief. And in your grief, transpose your grief into longing. Convert it into longing and aching for that true and heavenly home which awaits us, where the one whose hands were pierced for us on Sunday, or on Friday, are those that rose victoriously over the grave on Sunday and will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the hope that we grieve in. So when sorrows like Abraham's afflicts you, grieve with hope because God is preparing for you a true and heavenly home where death and tears are no more. Well, second reality in our text that should teach us to desire a heavenly home is the identity that marks us. So as we continue on in our text, Abraham now transitions from grieving over his wife to seeking to negotiate and buy a burial site for her. And to do this, He has to go to the Hittites, those who own the land near where he is, and he has to sit down and have this formal negotiation that goes back and forth in order to get the title to the land that he wants to bury his wife in. And as he enters into these negotiations, there are two statements made about his identity, one from him and one from the Hittites in verses 3 through 6. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered, Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bear your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So two identity statements. One from Abraham. I am a foreigner and sojourner among you. But then the Hittites said, no, you are a prince of God among us. So, we have these two almost contrasting identities. Sojourner and foreigner is a very humble and lowly title. He's not a resident. He's not a citizen. He has no rights to anything. Prince of God is a very high and honorable title. It is a royal title. So sojourner and foreigner is Abraham's description of his relationship to the land. I Here I have no home. Whereas the prince of God is the Hittite's description of Abraham's relation to the Lord. You are blessed of the Lord. We see it in you. And so there's a connection with these two, and yet there's a great contrast between them. And both of these are also simultaneously true of you as a believer. You have a dual identity in Christ because you have a dual status as citizens on this earth and citizens of heaven. So Abraham, let's take him one at a time. Abraham is a sojourner and foreigner. He's a stranger in a strange land. Think about whenever you travel internationally, you have to take something with you. That's very important. Your passport because every time you, you cross international boundaries you have to prove where your citizenship is I am a resident of America that way they'll let you back and also your passport shows that you're just here temporarily you're just passing through as it were and yet whenever you take that passport and you travel to these faraway, strange places where you're not a resident you're always reminded of it so when I when I traveled to Uganda as a college student my clothes, my native language, my accent, my mannerisms all served to out me to the people that I was a stranger, that I'm not from around here. And likewise, the food that was served to me in strange ways, the road systems and traffic patterns, the way people drove with no regard for life, <laughs> all reminded me that this place is not my home, that I'm just here temporarily. Abraham is a stranger and a foreigner because he's been called out of the place that he knew of his earthly home and he's a stranger and a foreigner because he is not yet at the place that God has prepared for him he's not yet at the home the new home that God has promised to him he is a pilgrim he's living between promise and fulfillment he's living between calling and reality so think of pilgrim's progress he's like Christian he's been called out of the city of destruction and he's looking forward to that celestial city which awaits him and in first Peter the apostle Peter says this is true of you your identity as a believer in Christ is this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we are like Abraham. Abraham was the prototype of the believer. He was called out of his homeland, thus made a stranger to this world, and he was looking forward to that new place that God had called him to. So like Abraham, we live always between promise and fulfillment, between calling and ultimate, final reality. So the moment you became a Christian, God ripped up your old passport, which had citizens of the kingdoms of this earth. And he gave you a new passport, which now says, citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and from it you await the glory and appearing of your great God and savior, Jesus Christ. Which consequently means that now on this earth, you're a soldier and a stranger. You are a stranger and a stranger. i no longer at home here. You are looking forward to that celestial city, which is to come. So how should this impact how you live? Well, as a sojourner in this passing place, remember always where your allegiance lies. Your allegiance lies not with any earthly political party, not with any earthly agenda, not with any earthly ideology, but with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Your allegiance is to his word, his kingdom, and his promises. As a stranger in this place, Seek to conform your character, your attitudes, and your actions to your heavenly savior, not to the people of earth. So much of peer pressure is forgetting where your citizenship lies. Who cares what others think of you on this earth? Who cares what your friends and peers think of you? You have the approval of your heavenly father. So as beloved children, seek to imitate him. And as sojourners like Abraham, long for the eternal joys of heaven. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The best pleasures of this earth are only faint whispers of heavenly pleasures. Other times, the pleasures of this earth are distractions and bait and hook waiting to draw us away from heaven. So let these words of John Newton be the anthem of your sojourning. So what he said, fading are the world's vain pleasures All their boasting pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. That's your anthem as a sojourner. Well, Abraham is not just a sojourner. He's also a prince of God in relation to the Lord. Now, certainly Abraham is uniquely given this title because they're recognizing that God has uniquely called him and is blessing him and is using him in a unique way to fulfill a role in his unfolding plan of redemption but even the lowliest believer, despite what you may think of yourself, has a royal status as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. You, believer, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world may not see you this way. You might not get many accolades from the world, regarding this status, you might struggle on a daily basis to grab hold of this status that is yours. But if you're in Christ, then your heavenly father sees you this way and declares this to be true of you. So you're a stranger on earth, but you are a royal citizen of heaven, for that is your true and better heavenly home that you're to be longing for. Well, the third reality, and our final reality, that you caused us to look eagerly For the heavenly home which God is preparing for us is the graves that will eventually accommodate us. So I've only got through six verses so far of 20 verses. What's interesting about this chapter, what's striking about it is the focus of this chapter is not on Abraham losing his wife, is not on Abraham mourning over his wife of of a philosophical contemplation of death. It's all about a negotiation to buy a cave east of Mamre, near the Oaks of Hebron. Why is that? Why is the vast majority of the details all about this? Well, let's walk through the details and let's seek to answer that question. Well, verse six, the Hittites hear Abraham's request for a burial place for his wife and they generously offer him whatever site he wants. So he gets his pick, as it were, but not wanting to show any ungratefulness, Abraham, he gets up, he bows to those who he's negotiating with and he asks for a specific site in verses seven to nine. Look there with me. Abraham rises, he bows down to the Hittites to show respect and honor. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field, for the full price that I'm given to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. So he's a specific site from a specific person that he wants to purchase, not just get as a gift. Well, Ephron, the owner of that site, steps forward in verse 11. He says this, No, my Lord Abraham, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So again, he's offered generously to receive this for free. Well, Abraham responds, once again, by respectfully declining the gift and insisting that he purchase it. Look at verse 13. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you hear me, I give the price to the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. So as negotiations would go in the ancient Near East, uh, when you name a price, you kind of name it subtly and reluctantly so that it sounds like you're really giving them a great deal, but you're actually uh, trying to get the, the top dollar for it. So this is what happens in verse 15. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 checkers of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. It's actually, that's a whole year's worth of wages just for a grave site. Now, I, I looked up Palm Beach County grave sites. They're not quite worth a year's worth of wages. If you go off my side, they're about 8000 to 10 they are still expensive. They're not cheap at all. But this is a whole year's worth of wages for this burial site. And then right then and there, Abraham ends the negotiations. He weighs out the 400 shekels of silver. He gives it to him. And then the property title for that piece of land is handed over to Abraham in their site. This is an official transfer of ownership to a piece of real estate to Abraham. Well, there's some questions that come out of that negotiation. Why does Abraham insist on purchasing this site? Here's why I think he is. He's not just interested in using the property. Okay, If he was, he would just say, fine, that, that's, that's good. He's interested in owning it. He sees this as his first opportunity to move out of the rental market, as it were, and to become an owner. In fact, he sees this as the means for God to give him his first slice of real estate in the land that God has promised to him. And that's exactly what he does. So Abraham, at the end of this chapter, doesn't just have a well of water to his name from Genesis 20. He now has his first very own formal piece of property that God has given to him. And notice how differently... The promise of land is initially fulfilled from the promise of offspring. The promise of offspring is miraculously, undeniably fulfilled by the Lord to Abraham and Sarah. They have a child in their very old age when it was humanly impossible. That is something that you, you see as an extraordinary gift. And yet look at the acquisition of land. It is an extremely ordinary, almost undetectable gift to Abraham you almost miss the fact that God in his providence and provision is working behind the scenes to start to give that first seed of the land promise to Abraham. And that's often how the, the Lord works in His in our lives. We, we often want something to be fulfilled, some desire, some want, some need, some issue. And we're looking for that undeniable, clear, miraculous, extraordinary provision of the Lord. And yet he often works incrementally, very slow, undetectably, and providentially behind the scenes to grant us those gifts. Well, next question. Why does Abraham want this specific site? He doesn't just want a gravesite that he owns, but he has this specific site in mind. There, there's many other caves. They, they offered him his pick of the land, and yet he wants this one. Well, I think Abraham chose this cave, which if you look at verse 17, is just east of Mamre, because this is the place where all of God's promises repeated and confirmed to Abraham. This is the very site where the most significant moments of Abraham's life with the Lord have taken place. So for example, Abraham was living in Mamre in Genesis 15 when he was struggling to believe God's promise and God said, look up at the stars. Can you number those stars? So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. It was in Genesis 17 that Abraham was living in Mamre when God changed his name and Sarah's name. And he said, I will give you the land of your sojourning as an everlasting possession. And it was near this site in Genesis 18 when the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham in Mamre. And he said to Sarah, this time next year, you shall surely have a son by me. So this is the place of the promises. So it is less a grave site and more of a memorial site to the faithfulness of the Lord who has made his promises and is keeping his promises. So when he's picking up the site and he's burying his wife, he is doing so in faith and hope, not in despair. This will always serve as a memorial. Whenever he goes to visit that site to say, the Lord is faithful, he will keep his promises. There is a true and better reality of these promises to come. He would not just be going to visit his beloved wife, but he would be going to visit the site that reminds him, that God is going to raise up his wife, he's going to fulfill his promises, he's going to do all that he said, greater and more abundantly than he could ask or imagine. So throughout history, Christians have always sought to proclaim the hope of the gospel and the promises of God even in the face of death. So for example, if you've been to a graveside service, a traditional graveside service where a casket is being laid in the ground and and even sometimes the minister will take a shovel and he'll, he'll shovel dirt over that casket, he'll read these words, for as much as it pleased Almighty God to take our loved one out of this world, we now commit their body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who shall transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body at the resurrection, and then shall come to pass that saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your is your victory. So Abraham is burying in this hope. He doesn't see it as much as we do because he was looking forward to what we get to look back on. He was looking forward to that day when someone would finally come and take this sting out of death. When someone would finally come and take that victory away from the grave. When someone would finally come and swallow up the grave and spit it out. He was looking for a day when Genesis 3 would become untrue, that the curse would be reversed and undone. And we know that day. It is the day of our Lord's resurrection when he conquered sin, when he defeated death, and in doing so, he transformed every cemetery of a believer into a future garden. Christians used to call cemeteries gardens because they were not just the place where you would lay a body. It was the place where you would plant a seed as it were that a believer's death and burial is not, as it were, the beginning of decomposition, but the sowing of a seed that will one day spring anew into eternal life, into glorious, heavenly, resurrection, eternal life. As I was explaining this to my kids last night, they're like, wait, wait, wait. So we're going to have bodies and they won't ever break, like I won't get wrinkly like older people do? I was like, well, you shouldn't tell that to older people. But yes, that's true. We'll have new, glorious bodies. Because the death of a believer is not a departure from home, but a heading to home. It is a transition to a better residence, a true and heavenly residence. And the death of a believer is not the beginning of sorrow. It is the end of their sorrow and the beginning of all their joys that will only grow and rise and flourish before our Savior. The death of a believer is not the beginning of their tears, It is the end of them when their savior wipes it away as they greet him face to face so the sorrows that afflict us the identity that marks us the graves that will eventually all accommodate us are used by god for a believer to fix our eyes on christ and to make us long for and look for that true and heavenly home which is to come because here we have no lasting city so look eagerly look longingly for that place which satisfies that true desire for permanence that reality that we look for, which is a city whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you have sent your son to defeat death, to take the sting out of sin, to remove the victory from the grave so that we no longer need to fear death, but instead we can know that one has come and rip the heart out of death. Because of his power, death could not hold him. Because of his purity, the grave could not keep him. And in him, though we die, yet shall we live. May this truth help us to grieve with hope, to look forward with longing and eagerness. We pray this in Jesus' name.